Mike Turber Investigations. Mike has been saying he wants to tell my side of things since he was used in the Discovery ID episodes about a cadaver dog being coaxed to bark at a lake as proof that Don is in a meat grinder at the bottom of the lake. I've sent him some background info so that he's not chasing down leads that really go nowhere. So here are a few of the emails to him. Could you email me your phone number so I can assign it to you in contacts and not ban or ignore it? This is what comes across my phone for the most part. So I let calls go to voicemail first. I apologize. I got this frog in my throat I can't get rid of. And then I gave the Vimeo link to a bunch of people cursing at me. If you have a list of outstanding questions you need to clear, just let me know so you aren't wasting time on dead ends. I just updated the page on Doc Antle today, and you will note that the only person to recant witnessing of my husband's signature was Susan Aronoff Bradshaw, who did so for the first time in 2005. The very next year, 2006, she added Antle to her board and continued adding his family until she isn't even on her own board to Preservation Station. See docantle.com. And then somebody sent me this email on December the 2nd, 2020. It was from Susan to someone, and this is the one you can see. Well, you can't see it because I forgot to put it there. This is the one Susan sent to someone hoping to discredit me, dated February 25th, 2005. I don't understand why anyone is trying to make anything of the will, power of attorney, or the trust documents. If they had been forgeries, or if they had not existed, then everything would have passed to me, as Don's kids were all in their 20s and 30s in 1997. Even though Don had disowned his children in September of 1996 and hadn't spoken to them since, and even though he had told me to dissolve the trust I had set up for him when we married, I chose instead to give them the properties Don owned before he and I became partners in 1981. I gave them more than a million dollars more than their father wanted them to have and could have just destroyed the documents if I were trying to cheat them. I don't know why. <clears throat> I don't know why that is so hard for people to understand. On December 1st, 2017, this diary entry reflected the first time since the 90s that I heard from Doug Edwards. Meanwhile, this afternoon, before hearing from Matt, the gift shop crew had called me over the radio saying a volunteer from the past named Doug Edwards wanted to see me. Doug's name came up in Don's disappearance documentation because he, Sandy Whitcock, and Susan Aronoff were usually the people who were around whenever we needed a notary and two witnesses. If Joe wanted to lure me out into the path of a bullet or a knife, he might well use such a ploy as to send someone in saying that they were this long-lost volunteer who had been so beloved. Thankfully, we had two surveillance cameras in the gift shop, and Doug is a very tall man. Seeing such a person standing against the wall, not shopping, gave me some assurance that going in to see him might not be the last thing I do. Doug had taken the 3 p.m. tour and then asked afterwards if they could call me to the store. It was great to see the wonder in Doug's face at the way the place has progressed since he left 20 years ago. I told Doug that I think of him often in the context of tours, because he was the first person to say, 
you know, you could charge people to come here. When I protested that people would just get themselves hurt, he offered to walk around with them. And that was the beginning of our guided tours back in 1995, when we had our first 43 visitors. After Tiger King, he called me and said he couldn't believe the lies being spread about me. He said if I ever needed him to feel free to reach out. I haven't asked him to speak to the press on my behalf because, as we've told you, we are looking to do a much bigger rebuttal than just a press mention or 20 minutes on some tabloid show. After 24 years, it would strike me as pretty bizarre if he, Susan, or Sandy could recall the day of the signing because they were always around the house and I had to call on them all the time for their signatures on real estate documents. It's not like there was some somber gathering of us all deciding on the terms of the will, power of attorney, or trust documents where we set our hands. It would have just been one of the many such moments where Don and I would say, can I get a witness? We often sang that phrase because it was so common. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Y'all stop singing. You can be sure that if either Doug or Sandy were to say, I don't remember that particular document, that will be all anyone prints or hears and the context will be forgotten. I've also talked to Doug's ex-wife since Tiger King, and she was in the news video the week of Don's disappearance, saying that she had just seen Don that weekend. Yes, the weekend Anne said he was already gone. In Ripper's interview of Jim Moore, he concurs that he saw and talked with Don late on Sunday, August 17th, and that Don bought a motorcycle from a guy for Costa Rica and asked Jim to drive the guy back to St. Pete. Jim said it was after dark when he returned. Jim also debunked the grinder and fed to the tiger scenario as he was our lead feeder for the big cats during that time. Kelly said she would be happy to speak, for my, speak on my behalf and when and if I ask, but there is no reason to do so until we are ready to film something. Kelly spoke to the press that week about what she knew and all of the years later confirms her memory is the same. My guess is that it's because of the fact that she had the print and the video to remind her of the events she might otherwise have forgotten over decades. 7106 and 7108. I bought 7106, the one acre park with the house, back in the 80s, I think. Public records will say for sure. Diary entry 101091 has a later edition that said, quote, I found a Tico light bill for 7106 that dates 9-27-91, so we were living on the island when we married, unquote. I later bought the three-acre piece and also called 7106 a few months later after buying the first parcel out of foreclosure. My original intent was to break it up and add three or four more houses on the river and canal fronts, but I didn't have a wide enough entry, so I had to buy 7108. I used both as rentals until Don and I moved in from about 91 to 93 when we moved out to Easy Street. I moved back to 7106, never did build the houses, in 1999 and have lived here since. When I moved back in 1999, I brought Alan Schreier with me, but we broke up around 10 17 of 2001. Howie moved in with me here in 2003. My daughter lives, I'm not going to say where she lives, and has since maybe 2003 or so. I gave her the house because she and I made a deal when she hit puberty. No smoking, no drugs, no drunkenness, and no babies, and I'll provide for you forever if you want. She works hard and earns her keep, but if she wanted to goof off and do nothing, I'd support her as part of our deal. When we weren't living in the homes, they were rented out, and Doug and Kelly were tenants for a while. Sherry Frost, the housekeeper who stole my diary and seems to have gotten it into Ann McQueen's hands, 
was a tenant of mine there for a while. Nothing more sinister than that. As for Alan's comment about Costa Rica, I don't know what that was about. After Don's disappearance, I worked on trying to divest myself of the Costa Rica holdings, but wasn't successful at that until after Howie came along. I certainly wasn't buying property there. This was the entry about breaking up with Alan and could explain a bit about why he's not my biggest fan. November 17, 2001 Diary Entry I prepared the following letter to break up with Alan Schreier. When I came home from church this night, he asked me to tell him what was bothering me. The night before, he had asked if I would count him in on a deal that not only did he put no work into, but his interference had almost blown it for me. I told him most of the non-religious reasons that appear in the following letter. Upon advice from my mother, I now made the focus of my leaving him the religious aspects so that he could save face and not, quote, try to do better. I was much kinder in what I said, but all of these thoughts were expressed to some degree in the past two days. Dear Alan Schreier, when we first met, I told you that I did not believe it was right to have sex outside of marriage, but I was so crazy about you that I compromised my belief and did what my body yearned to do with you. I have always felt the burden of my sins in this relationship with you, but would brush those thoughts aside in favor of recalling how much joy you had brought into my life. I have been in constant turmoil since our first night together, but thought that perhaps, in time, we would marry and God would forgive me. I prayed about it all the time. Staying in this relationship was wrong, but I am weak and my heart overpowered my soul. I couldn't leave you while I was so in love with you. Our relationship ended on the day you came in complaining that Vince and Sheila had told Todd that you never accomplished anything on your own, but rather had relied on handouts from me to get where you are. I wanted to believe your anger was based upon the fact that they said that to your son rather than to your face. So I asked, quote, why do you think they said that, unquote? While I am still sure that you were upset that Todd heard it, your tirade about the issue was focused entirely on how they did not recognize the fact that you achieved your success entirely on your own. You have never acknowledged what I have done for you and the hundreds of thousands of dollars that I have invested in getting you out of debt and on your feet. You have never said that you appreciated that I put my own career on hold for nearly three years to get yours going. Even when I have felt most put out in listening to you brag to others about all that you have achieved, I haven't attempted to set the record straight because I was sure that on some level you knew your pride and your dignity have been more important to me than the need for me to remind you about how you got to where you are. When you asked me for the third time tonight to give you a handout, I couldn't make excuses for you anymore. My voice sounded distant, angry, and shaking as I recounted just a few of the more costly sacrifices I have made for you. I stopped short of mentioning most of the accounts because there is nothing to be gained in venting my frustration with you. This is a lot more about just be this is a lot more than just about money. I fell in love with your looks and your sex appeal. In retrospect, I think we just hadn't been late in a while when we met because in just a few months our sex had gone from great to hop on being the extent of your participation. You have made a couple of attempts to be more involved in the past few weeks, but it comes a bit late. I couldn't really ask you to put more effort into sex when I knew it was wrong for me to be engaged in it anyway. I let my body go as bad as you did, but when I finally found something that worked, I cared enough to try and look my best. You have made it clear that filling your stomach is more important to you 
than maintaining what attracted me to you. It's never a good thing to fall in love with a person's looks. That is shallow, and I knew better. Initially, I liked that we could talk, but I soon learned that I couldn't tell you anything of any real importance because you would repeat it to anyone who would listen. It is not that nothing ever happens in my course in the course of my day. It's that I don't feel safe in sharing it with you. Sometimes I really need to talk out loud, but I can never give you the whole story because I never know whom you will blurt it out to. Your need for confrontation in your life makes me wary of what I say. I see you do it to your friends, and I watch in horror as they exclaim that they can't believe you repeated this or that. If there is anything that I don't need in my life, it's that kind of stress. The fact that you can repeat what I say to you tells me that when you choose to overlook what I have done for you, it is a conscious choice and not one of senility, and that hurts. Finally, and most importantly, what kind of a future can I expect with you? I take marriage very seriously, and I see it as two people pulling toward a common goal. My goal is to make my life count and to use every minute here trying to leave the world a better place so that when I die, I made a difference. I see this world as just a momentary diversion that prepares us for eternity. And although I make my share of mistakes and have my load of shortcomings, I really try to learn what God has asked of me and to do it. Not only do you have no passion for this life, you have no concern for your creator or what he expects from you. We need a bigger goal than a fat bank account to be pulling toward if there is any future for us. I don't think you're a bad person, but I think you are too lazy to make any lasting change. I need a person that I can look up to, someone that I can be in awe of. I tried to create that in you, but at your core, you are still looking for the easy way out. You talk a great game, and even fooled me for a while, but not only do you lack the skills to ever succeed on your own, you lack the desire to learn, and that is something I just can't fix. You ask to come along with me when I look at tax deed properties, but driving around looking at property is not the hard part. It is the years of experience and the countless hours of research that I spend in the court records that makes a deal. And that is not something you want to do. So what now? I am typing this at 1.30 in the morning, like I do a lot of my work, because your snoring has run me out of the room. I will set up a bed in the guest room so that I can sleep. I would like you to start looking for your own place. I don't want you to live somewhere that you are unhappy. And I don't want you to make a bad financial choice of homes because you feel rushed. I want you to find a place with a big yard so that the dogs can get some exercise. If it means you need to find a new woman to move in with, then you should start advertising. I'll give you a good reference. There was no way for me to be honest with you without hurting your feelings. I am sorry for this. I need to move on, but there's no rush. I'm not seeing anyone, obviously, and I have no plans to start. People will want to know why, and I would just suggest, quote, religious differences, unquote, as the best reason to tell them. Meanwhile, we can be as close or as distant as you feel comfortable with. I will try not to act any different than I have for the past year. I would like to remain your friend, but realize that you may need time to adjust first. Carol. Attached is my lifelong timeline. I think it was updated last in July, so there may be a few inaccuracies as more information is revealed, but it's pretty close to right. Some people from this saga, who are dead ends because they are dead, are Joe Ryan, the guy who built the shell everyone now calls Don's Lake House, even though no work was ever done on it after Joe Ryan was foreclosed off it, Sherry Frost, Stole My Diaries, and Michael Murdoch, Jamie's father died of heart failure in South Carolina. Sometimes hear people say, 
I sometimes hear that people are trying to say that Mike and Jeff Lowe are the same person or crazy things. So I figured I'd save you a few rabbit holes. The sheriff started this rumor about Don not being there for six months prior. It may have been more than it may have been more than six months prior to their visit because they waited so long. But my diary entries and Don's passports put him there within a month or two before his disappearance, but not after August 18. So that's not really relevant other than to show how wrong the sheriff has been. I've been told the sheriff let Rebecca Chaiklin look at their original files, but then afterwards, no one, including the sheriff, seems to be able to see the years of correspondence I've had with them after Don left. Did she steal the files? And is that why the sheriff has said things that aren't true? Like saying they only spoke with me twice when we talked all the time? I have faxes and diary entries that span years of dialogue with them about Don. A new rumor I just heard was that Donna Pettis and her husband split up the day of the publicity stunt memorial in August this year. If you can find him, you might want to know why. I know there is no truth in what Mike Ackley is saying because I never did drugs. See attached diary entry from 1977-0331. On the one time, I bummed a laced cigarette that freaked me out so much, I never did drugs. From the time I was 15 until I was 19, I could drink anyone under the table because I worked in bars, and at the end of the night, it was common practice for the staff to pour all of the half-finished drinks into a pitcher called a suicide, and we'd down it all before going home. When I got pregnant at 18 with Jamie, I quit drinking anything other than an occasional glass of red wine. I'm a workaholic and never had time for parties of any kind until we started lobbying for better laws for the cats. That means I end up at political fundraiser cocktail parties a lot, even though I hate that sort of thing. This diary entry is long, but gives a pretty good sense of who I am and how I got here. Most people seem to think Tom was dealing drugs but I think it's because they just couldn't figure out where he was getting all the cash. I was making so much money in real estate, but he controlled the bank accounts and collected the rents and cash. So I really think that's where he got all the money he was flashing all the time. I loved him and let everyone believe he was the earner in our family because the money never mattered to me other than making sure we could take care of the cats. I knew if it was... I knew it was going to be a very I knew it was going to be very expensive to make lasting changes for the big cats and domestic cats, so I was happy to work crazy hours in a high-risk business. I felt that if I let Don invest a million dollars on his own in Costa Rica, he'd see that he really wasn't the one earning the money, and he'd come to appreciate me. In recording my diary, I am up to the breakup with Alan Schreier, and it's the same story again. I invest in him let him take all the credit, and then he begins to believe he's the person I've painted him to be. After 9-11, I came to the realization that I wasn't going to allow this same pattern anymore, and I left him. I continue the same pattern with Peter Kent, but get out of the relationship sooner the next time. By the time I meet Howie in 2002, I figured out that if I want to control my own destiny, it means separate bank accounts and not investing in my partner's financial success. Howie has never been the leech the other men in my life have been. I think most men find me to be a threat because I upset the patriarchal status quo that they've enjoyed. It's easy to paint me as a villain so that other women don't dare speak their minds. All right, well, 
still trying to get used to the teleprompter. It can't roll as fast as I can talk, which is a problem. And I'm a southerner, man. I, I speak slowly, visibly. You got to fix that. <laughs>